working in a primary care or ambulatory setting these days is both more exciting and more overwhelming than ever before. Exciting because primary care is pretty much ground zero for health reform, and there's a huge green light to transform how care is delivered. Overwhelming because the best care coordination and staffing models and business models are still emerging. Patient panels are expanding, and new things are being tried and maybe less than perfect in broad daylight under everyone's watchful eyes. Also, like me, perhaps many of you listening today are now routinely asked to fill fill out a depression screening form when you visit your primary care provider. This activity is actually just the tip of the iceberg of what may be amongst the most significant changes underway in primary care to date. Having a system and a team in place to address the behavioral health issues a patient may have right then and there in relationship to physical ailments and in the context of achieving overall health. In other words, the patient, the person, the whole person is here in the office or clinic now. How can we help? That's what's coming up on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We offer this to you biweekly, and also you can catch it later via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So behavioral health integration may sound rather dry and jargony, but the concept represents truly breakthrough thinking for patients today in primary care. We may have long understood the connections between body and mind, especially when they're at cross purposes, but most primary care practices and staff weren't set up to do a whole lot more than refer patients elsewhere. That's really changing. And we're going to hear about some of this work from our terrific panel today. And I'm going to introduce them in just a moment. But first, I turn to IHI's John Gothier, who's here in the studio, to remind you how to be an active participant in today's show. Thanks, John. All right. Thanks, Matt. Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know that on the right is our chat window. That's where all the great conversation takes place. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged on to your computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a slower or less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. Their number is on our slide as we speak. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks so much, John. And remember, if you like to tweet, please do during or after the show, and please include at the IHI our handle in your tweets. All right. Now to some brief introductions. Joining us by phone, I believe he's in Seattle today, is Ed Wagner. He's a general internist and epidemiologist and Emeritus Director of the McCall Center for Healthcare Innovation and Senior Investigator at the Group Health Research Institute. His research and quality improvement work focus on patients with chronic illness, and Dr. Wagner and his McCall colleagues developed something very familiar to many of you, the chronic care model, and that's been used and is used in quality improvement programs worldwide. So welcome to you, Ed Wagner. Thanks, Madge. Wonderful to have you. All right. Also on the phone, uh, still, I guess we're out west, Robin Henderson is the Chief Behavioral Health Officer and Vice President of Strategic Integration at St. Charles Health System in Bend, Oregon. Robin is responsible for the strategic direction, operations, and integration of behavioral health services across the health system and throughout primary care. A welcome to you, Robin. Welcome. Thank you, Madge. It's a pleasure to be here from 
Frigid, Oregon. Frigid. Yes, I saw somebody uh, chatted in that you've got some icy weather. Okay. Well, glad. Hope you're safe and warm somewhere, and thank you for joining us. Also on the phone, uh, a little bit closer to us in the Boston area in Tennessee, Perinda Katri is Chief Clinical Officer at Cherokee Health Systems, a comprehensive community health care organization in Tennessee. She provides oversight and guidance on clinical quality, program development, and clinical operations for blended primary care and behavioral health services within the organization. So glad you're part of today's show. Perinda, welcome. Thank you, Madge. Wonderful. And we've got here in the studio with me, Mara Laterman is a senior research associate at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. She is currently leading IHI's work in behavioral health, and this includes developing content and programming sort of like this one, to improve behavioral health care in the U.S. and globally. Welcome, Mara. Thanks, Madge. All right, and one more person to acknowledge today, and John, just so we can all get a visual of Cindy Hupke. Cindy is director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, also working closely with Mara and others on behavioral health as faculty. She serves as content lead for IHI's triple aim work on populations. Cindy has a cold and not much voice today, so she's stepping back from a speaking role, but we hope to hear from her via chat. So welcome to you, Cindy, and uh, join in in the discussion today. So uh, we're going to start off with Mara. Um, Mara IHI comes to this behavioral health integration in a rather organic way. We've been doing a lot of research, learning on the ground with numerous practices. So what are we finding out about the benefits of this deepening commitment to behavioral health integration in primary care? And welcome again. Thanks, Madge. So I really want to set the stage for why integrating behavioral health in primary care is so essential to work on and ground us in a common definition of integration. So we know that patients who have both medical and behavioral health conditions experience poor outcomes and high costs. And this is emphasized in numerous studies showing that patients who have both a chronic medical condition and a behavioral health condition such as major depression have poor outcomes, increased functional disability, increased healthcare utilization and work absence when compared to patients with a chronic illness who don't have that behavioral health diagnosis. And these patients also have uh, tend to have significantly higher costs ranging from 150 to 300% higher than the cost of caring for a chronic medical condition alone. And since about 50% of all behavioral health conditions are treated in primary care, and 80% of individuals who have a behavioral health condition will visit primary care at least one time in a calendar year, it's really just so essential that primary care is better able to care for these patients. And so I'm going to put a definition of integration up on the screen that we're using in our work here. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it comes from the ARC lexicon for a behavioral health integration. And the point here is that true integration really goes beyond hiring a clinical social worker or doing depression screenings. That's not going to get the full benefits of integrated primary care and behavioral health. We know that all health has a behavioral component and that truly integrating behavioral health care means working with patients to improve their lifestyle through supporting them in efforts to uh, manage chronic diseases, engage in healthy behaviors. And this really has to be a core focus of integrated primary care just as much as treating those diagnosable behavioral health conditions. I don't mean to minimize that. But the behavioral health capacity on the care team, and I say capacity because it might not always be a full-time staff member, is a core member of the primary care team. They help patients with a full range of behavioral supports, including screening and intervention for these diagnosable conditions, but also really working on health behaviors and working with the entire care team to address some of these behavioral determinants of health. All right, Mara is so <laughs> crisp in her remarks. I'm just going to kind of flip back because we had some really nice uh, slides that I want to just make sure that we see. Uh, this one, I think, is really, really interesting in terms of just seeing the relationship uh, between these kinds of chronic health conditions and mental illness. And uh, another one uh, that's looking at really some of the differences uh, with respect to chronic conditions with and without comorbid depression, which I think many of us who are, many of the folks tuned in today are quite familiar with. So I think keep those in mind um, as we, um, you know, proceed through the rest of our discussion, uh, discussion here. And um, put this last one up here, John, also here, integration is simply good care. Um, 
I want to, I, I guess, Mara, just to ask you a quick question before we turn to Ed Wagner. Um, I guess from the work that you're doing so far with teams, and you're going to tell us later in the show about even more work that's coming up and more programmatic stuff here at IHI, um, is everybody kind of on board with this right now, would you say, um, it, as you kind of interact with teams, is somehow this kind of getting reinforced over and over again? I think so. I think, you know, if you asked us that question a couple of years ago, I think you would have gotten a different answer, but I think that teams are really coming around to the realization that this is something that they're going to have to do. Oh. Um, and so I, I think that that's definitely true, but we still have a long way to go, I think. All right. Very, very good. Okay. Thanks, Mara. And we'll hear more from Mara um, in Q&A and as we proceed. So I want to turn now to Ed Wagner. Uh, Ed, uh, these are the underlying issues, the sort of very solid argument in, in many ways uh, for this integration. And now we're trying to figure out structurally uh, how to do this, build the infrastructure. And you've been looking particularly the last few years at what's going on with teams in primary care. Uh, and I guess I wanted to ask you to pull from some of those observations in terms of what you see as um, a potentially exemplary primary care team when it comes to behavioral health integration. And we know that a lot of people can start to worry, uh-oh, we've got we to hire a whole lot more people, uh, that that's uh, kind of how we, we fill this in. So, Ed, take it away. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Madge. Uh, the, I think the movement to uh, tr help transform American primary care to patient-centered medical homes has, uh, has really revealed how critically important it is to build high-functioning, multi-person, multidisciplinary teams t to meet the comprehensive needs of a primary care population. Um, so, some of the the emphasis on behavioral integration is really generic. What we found, for example, is that the care of chronic conditions, the common ones like hypertension, diabetes, uh, congestive heart failure, uh, are substantially improved by the involvement of others besides providers like medical assistants, nurses, pharmacists, et cetera, in the care of those patients. So that's the background for this, because much of the behavioral health issues, the mental health issues, substance abuse issues are, are, are really chronic ongoing problems. So built on that, though, the, the, that comprehensive definition of behavioral integration suggests that for most primary care, there is a need to bring additional expertise to the core primary care team. Uh, and, and so that, in our work in, uh, in our project LEAP, Learning from Effective Ambulatory Practices, a national program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation where we're studying innovative practices that have created interesting, innovative, high-functioning teams. We're frequently seeing that first on the, on the background of an effective team that includes providers, medical assistants, access uh, to nursing expertise, uh, they will add to that team uh, a behavioral health specialist, often a licensed clinical social worker uh, who can provide uh, short-term therapy, assessment, and those needs. But in addition, practices also need to build the capacity to care for the common mental health disorders encountered in primary care, like major depression, uh, where uh, it, what is really important is effective medication management, uh, and that can be attained through collaborative care using an external consultant working with a 
core team member serving as a care manager or case manager. So this is uh, this is what we are seeing in leap sites, and uh, this is the d general direction that I think we would like to go in the IHI collaborative work. Okay, uh, thanks, Ed. I appreciate that. And again, I think we'll circle back with you as we get. We'll kind of now go on the ground a little bit with uh, Robin and Perinda, and then I hope uh, you, you and, and Mar again can uh, weigh in. So let me uh, now turn to you, Robin uh, Henderson from St. Charles. Uh, where I've learned from you that behavioral health integration uh, grew up because of what was happening in the systems emergency department, and I think that will resonate with many probably tuned in today. So what was going on there uh, to that pointed to not only what was needed that could be done differently in the ED, but also further upstream in primary care? And welcome again. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Central Oregon's a, a very unique part of the country. We're one of that small handful of health systems that has what they call a 93% acute care catchment area. So 93% of the people who get their acute care get their acute care from our health system within our health region. And that means they get their emergency department care within our health region, and we have a lot of visibility to see that. We have a catchment area of about 250,000 people. Uh, we have a level two trauma center. We have one psychiatric unit, one psychiatric ED. And when we were looking back in 2009 at how we not only as a health system, but as a community could really start to impact population health and what was going on with our residents, one of the things we wanted to target was what was happening in our emergency departments. We were seeing increased wait times, increased high-frequency visitors, and realizing that that wasn't the best way to provide health care. So we started looking at these folks to see who they were and why were they coming to our emergency departments. And we saw a trend that, that targeted folks who had um, high numbers of visits. They also had either a chronic pain issue or a, or a concurrent mental health issue that wasn't a primary diagnosis, but usually a secondary or tertiary diagnosis, or, or they had some type of other social disparity of health that was bringing them into our emergency department, and this really wasn't the best place to care for them. So we started an ER diversion project at that point in 2010, looking at folks who were commonly coming to our ER and trying to figure out what the themes were so that they could get better health and better care. And out of that, we learned that we really needed to integrate our behavioral health consultants to where people were. We were referring people to specialty mental health and they weren't going. Our primary care providers were referring them and they weren't going. And even out of the ER, we were referring people to primary care and they weren't going. So we started engaging individually with behavioral health consultants and eventually began placing them into primary care settings and began to realize that they were the people who could make the connections with folks who were not necessarily attached to our health system. And our first set of identifying complex patients that we would send to the behavioral health consultants came through that ER work and subsequently expanded to really starting to look at complex patient data. Now where we're at is we're looking at our complex patient data related to Medicaid and realizing that many of the folks we need to have engaged with our behavioral health consultants aren't engaged with our health system at all. And then the new way that we're looking at this also at the same time around identifying patients is looking at how we identify them through the clinician. Because just as important as the data is what the clinician is seeing as those people who they know are, are in trouble, aren't connected to the healthcare system, and do need that support. As you can see from the slide that you have up there right now, our ED project was very successful in our first year. We were able to attain a 65% reduction in visits per person in our target population, which was astronomical at that point. I will tell you that we've struggled over the years to maintain the infrastructure, because at first we tried to maintain the infrastructure through primarily the emergency department, and we realized that, that it really needed to be in primary care. So we formally moved our projects out into primary care, but we forgot one really big key factor, and that's when you have a, a strategic intention to put behavioral health into primary care, it's great, it's the smart thing to do. But you can't forget about the culture. 
What's very important is the culture of primary care and all of the impacts that putting it, behavioral health into primary care can have on that culture. Paying attention to practice facilitation and change management within a practice to bring in this needed resource was our biggest learning. And we really came out of this with the idea that culture really does eat strategy for breakfast. And, and I hope that folks, when they, when they walk through this path and go down this road, pay attention to the impact that doing good has within a system. This has been a very successful program for us. We've seen great ED reductions and still maintain them. We've seen reductions in overall healthcare spend in target populations, and we've expanded to other, other parts of our hospital, which I can talk about a little bit later, but that's kind of a taste of what this has done for us. Okay, sounds great. I wanna, thank you, uh, Robin. I wanna put up one more slide that you had sent us that has some nice uh, URLs uh, in there. Uh, tell us uh, about, uh, obviously we see the St. Charles uh, website, but what about some of these other uh, um, orgs here? Well, the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association is really the premier organization on integrating behavioral health and primary care and integrating care. Uh, it's a national organization that has a wonderful conference that was just in Washington, D.C. in 2014, and in 2015 will be in Portland, Oregon, uh, my own happy town here of Portland, Oregon, and will feature Perinda Khatri and some of the other great, great thought leaders in integrated behavioral health. We hope that this is a space where folks can come and not only learn, but share their experiences as we grow this new field. The Central Oregon Health Council uh, organization up there, www.cohealthcouncil.org, for those of you who are interested in specific information about the success and how we did our ER navigation project, there's a comprehensive white paper on that website that lays out all of the data and everything that we did uh, that you are more than welcome to take a look at. All right, that's very helpful. And I'm gonna, thank you, and I'm gonna ask you just one more question, because you said such a provocative thing around culture eating strategy. Um, how would you, just quickly, and we can come back to this, uh, but how would you assess uh, the primary care inter integration, kind of where that stands right now uh, in the St. Charles uh, system? Kind of how would you describe sort of where you are in that journey? Uh, it's a roller coaster for us. We kind of go through peaks and valleys, and I would say right now, we're really at, we're going back to some basics of identification and re-education to make sure that our team, our nurse care coordinators, our primary care providers, and our behavioral health consultants and community health workers are practicing the basics. What we found happened was people got very comfortable in having all of the pieces, but they weren't very comfortable in having all the pieces as a team. So everybody knew their role and was doing their role but they weren't doing their role in a team-based way, so they were siloed. So the nurse care coordinator was seeing one group of patients, but not necessarily sending them to the behavioral health consultant, and primary care wasn't necessarily referring to the community health workers. So we're working closely with IHI as part of the Better Health Lower Cost Collaborative to go back to basics of identification and team-based small tests of change to retrain ourselves, especially as we bring on new providers and new clinics. We've gone from a start of three clinics to now five in our system, and that kind of growth, looking to grow even more, uh, I think has had an impact on us. So I like to say that we're going back up the hill. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Going back up the hill sounds exactly right, what you got to do. That's very, very helpful, and I, I think is good, Grist, uh, for conversation, which will be coming up uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, let's uh, – th so thank you, Robin. And now let's go to Perinda um, uh, Katri. The story at Cherokee in Knoxville offers us kind of almost the reverse of what we assume about behavioral health integration in Cherokee's case. It was patients with identified behavioral health needs not receiving related primary health care services. So talk about that, and I don't know, are we all meeting in the middle somewhere right now? Um, but what's unique uh, about your journey, and welcome again. 
Well, thank you very much, um, Madge. So uh, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, Cherokee uh, got into this business of primary care integration because, frankly, our patients led the way. We are a comprehensive community health care organization uh, in East Tennessee. We have 50-plus clinical locations in Eastern Tennessee, and as you can see, it's very much our mission to provide integrated primary care behavioral health substance abuse services to uh, people in our community. And we are, uh, you know, we're very focused on providing kind of holistic, holistic care to people who need it. We started out with integration. Actually, we didn't act, integration was not our goal. Our goal was to provide excellent care uh, for our patients. But what we found, um, and we had started out as a community mental health center in 1960s. So in the 1970s, 80s, what we found is that we, we were providing community mental health services to people who could not get good behavioral health care. Meanwhile, we were noticing that they were dying of physical health problems. They were um, not taking good care of their health. They had physical health issues that were not being addressed. And in addition, because of our emphasis on access to care, we started setting up, in fact, our CEO, um, frankly, to save money, uh, set up in uh, primary care. And he was very surprised to see that he uh, saw just as much behavioral health, mental health concerns in primary care as we did in our traditional community mental health sites. And so in the 19, early 1980s, we started blending the two, recognizing that you could not really do one well without the other. If we wanted to provide good behavioral health care, we were going to have to provide good primary care. And to provide good primary care, we were going to have to address behavioral health. And so this was really our goal. We wanted to improve the health of the population. We wanted every single person, regardless of ability to pay, regardless of insurance status and other social uh, kind of social determinants of health, to have the best quality of care uh, as the next person. So our reducing health care disparities and really giving kind of state-of-the-art care to everyone, regardless of their resources, became a, a, a very, very powerful driving factor for us. Um, as was in improving access and being very patient-centered because many of our patients, you know, they may live in rural areas, even in urban areas. Transportation is an issue. Certainly there are stigma issues. And, and frankly, um, to expect people to kind of connect all the pieces and all the dots and make all the appointments that we ask them to make and keep everything in their head about what medications they're on and what labs they need, I think is, is very unfair. We wanted to organize a system around our patients rather than ask our patients to organize around us. So we really then recognized that integration was a means to an end. It was how we could achieve these goals. And so then when we looked at what we needed to do to do that, we had to re-engineer primary care. Absolutely. So what we started to do was distribute functions of care across the team integrating our workflow. So when people start, uh, they come into our clinics and they show up on our door doorsteps, to them it's seamless. They come in for the care that they need. Now they may see the primary care provider, they may see behavioral health, clinical pharmacist, nurse, health coach, what have you, but it's all coordinated as one team. That also means that when someone has behavioral health needs in our clinics, they are seen at the point of care. They do not get a referral card. They don't wait uh, two days, three days, a week. Anything less than at the point of the care for us is unacceptable. And so when we were able to re-engineer that and say we're going to have people talking with one another, we're going to really bring the patient back in the center of the healthcare team, we, we were able to develop an integrated team model. And what it looks like at the ground level, if you look at kind of what it means in terms of the all the different components. Number one, we have a behaviorist on the primary care team, and we call them like in uh, Robin's group, BHCs, behavioral health consultants. They are just part of the primary care team. 
they are um, 100% dedicated to primary care. They do not have a traditional mental health caseload. Uh, we are embedded right in the primary care area. In fact, right now, my consultation office is, I mean, it's right. I can, I'm two steps away from exam rooms, and that's how our BHCs are. We have a consulting psychiatrist who is available, again, at the point of care to provide consultation on psychotropic med management, and then also care management, case management, also at the point of care. So it's very possible that a patient comes in and sees all of us and is able to get all these issues addressed at once. And in fact, we have a number of patients that, you know, that this is how they get care in terms of their chronic care. They know every two or three months, this is their team and they will see their team. That means that we have a shared patient panel and population health goals. So in terms of our clinical quality, all of our clinical quality goals, for example, achieving um, you know, good hypertension control, uh, you know, glucose control for patients with diabetes, that is the responsibility of every single person on their team. The same is true for behavioral health, that someone's level of functioning and adjustment is a responsibility of the behavioral health provider as well as the primary care provider. And so that level of collaboration requires a very strong operational infrastructure, integrated charts, shared support staff. We have shared appointment systems. Our appointment schedules mirror one another. We, can all, we all have access to each other's appointment systems, and that certainly keeps, uh, you know, uh, that requires a, quite a bit of trust, but that's what you need, that level of um, alignment in everything that we're doing to provide the access and collaboration that we need. What's unique about our behaviorist is that the behaviorist on this team is unique. We don't, they don't really function like a traditional specialty health provider. This is not just about picking someone up and putting them in primary care. They really are um, acting with all the functions and fulfilling all the functions of good primary care. So their scope of service is much, ex much more expanded than it would be in traditional mental health. We will work with management, self-management, and management support for a wide range of chronic health conditions. We will work on lifestyle uh, modification, behavior change, anything related to prevention. So, for example, our BHCs are part of every well child exam. They do all the screenings. They do the anticipatory guidance. They're part of our OB visits because our patients, our pre patients during pregnancy, many of them are very high risk. So every one of them sees a behaviorist and a case manager. We have protocols and programs for obesity, smoking cessation, tobacco cessation. And then, of course, we manage quite a few uh, mental health, psychosocial issues in primary care. So we're actually able to keep most of most patients with behavioral health concerns, we're able to manage them in primary care. And like Robin, we have noticed um, and observed very significant um, positive outcomes, financial outcomes, utilization outcomes that when our payers share data with us, they will, they will say your patients have a significantly reduced ER utilization as if we compare, if we compare them to patients seen by any other provider. It's the same for specialty utilization and inpatient hospital days. So we found that this model works. It works for us in terms of access and clinical quality goals, but it seems to also work in terms of the overall system in providing cost-efficient and effective care. Wow, Perinda, you laid out quite a bit, and thank you very much, and the questions have started flowing in for you and for others, so thank you very much. I think uh, before I have John sort of just make sure everyone knows how to do the chat, which it appears most people do, let's, let me just ask you one question that was floating in as you were wrapping up, which is, how is all this paid for? And you could almost hear somebody wondering, wow, <laughs> how does one afford uh, what, what you're talking about so could you just uh, quickly say uh, just a bit more about the financial model here 
Yeah, I, I will. First of all, it is not easy. Um, however hard you think it is, I would say multiply it by 10 or even 100 because our financing system is not organized around integrated care. It's incredibly fragmented, siloed. Um, it's It historically has not been organized around paying for value and outcome. It's been organized around paying for visits, visits, visits. And this fee-for-service system is a disincentive to efficient care. So we we were very fortunate, and I think a key piece for us is we started um, very early comparative, you know, compared to a lot of other organizations. So we have like 30 years under our belt, and we did a couple of things. One is we had very strong leadership in our CEO, Dr. Dennis Freeman, who was very committed to this model and essentially told his team, make this work financially, just make it work, and let's get the second thing is let's get big enough so that payers and insurance companies have to listen to us. You know, they can't ignore us. And so there was a very strategic decision to expand into as many, many areas as possible. And so then when we asked for a meeting, uh, payers had to come to the table. And then they were, over time, they were more open to more global payment, payment for care coordination. And so what we did essentially was piece things together over time. All Our BHCs do bill for individual services, our CFO and his team worked incredibly hard to uh, develop contracts, negotiate contracts to get reimbursement for what BHCs do. They worked very hard to address some of the barriers in terms of, you know, the policy uh, policy and logistical issues. You can't see pa two patients for the, you know, two providers for the same problem in one day. So I think it was, it's been very hard, but we've had time and we've had enough um, influence that we've been able to negotiate strategies to piece things together. And that's not been the best way, but it's been the only way thus far. Now, finally, as you were saying, finally now, I think that uh, with uh, the focus on triple aim, with you know, healthcare reform, this context where everyone is looking at different ways of doing things. Finally, we have payers saying, you know what, we are much more interested in negotiating pay for performance, global payment systems, because you are, you are saving us a lot of money. You are. So you should get some of those cost savings um, because we want to incentivize what you're doing. You know, we don't want to incentivize inefficient care. And so now we're hoping that rather than piecing things together from, you know, our BHC reimbursement and care coordination fees and all those other things, that we can get more global payment for value. Um, and uh, then moving forward. All right. Well, that <laughs> it's it's um, wondrous and interesting what you're in the midst of. Uh, Mara and I were scribbling notes to one another. Uh, her reminding me that, uh, of course, Robin and St. Charles can address this as well. And finances are often on folks' mind. Robin is reminding us that she is leading a workshop at our upcoming national forum next week. So if you're inclined to get down. To to Orlando, not far from Harry Potter World and Disney, etc. Um, you can certainly do a really deep dive uh, there as well. Uh, Perinda, I'm going to just hold off on a couple of other additional questions on the finances, um, and uh, same to you, Robin. And I think I want to go back to Ed and bring him in here uh, around. We we talked in our planning call how financing uh, it comes up uh, over and over again, and I think it said to us that maybe at some point we will do a, a full program on the finances unto itself. But I'm wondering, Ed, um, is that how, – how should we look at money and sort of how you're getting paid so that it is not uh, the sort of the stumbling block uh, in terms of moving forward? Um, and anything else you want to comment on, Ed, as you've listened to uh, Robin and uh, Perinda describe kind of the teams, how they've assembled things? Well, I have no, I have no magic uh, uh, sauce for f funding. Darn. I think the story, the stories that we heard from our 31 leap sites, uh, those that had successfully built effective behavioral health uh, act, uh, programs, uh, were very similar to what Perinda just described. 
they piece it together with uh, the fee-for-service payments that uh, that the clinical behaviorists can uh, can achieve, uh, and then use bundled or uh, capitated payments. Uh, keep an eye on the coordinated care payment that Medicare is going to make available shortly, uh, because that will be a way of uh, of doing some of the things that uh, Robin and Perinda described. Uh, but there, but at the moment, it's it is cobbling together and being created. The only thing I I would add is is that uh, uh, in. In every place we said, given the difficulties in funding, why did you do this? And the answer was exactly what Perinda just described, because it's the right thing to do. And you can't practice comprehensive primary care that is going to keep people out of the hospital and out of the emergency room, which is the goal of the Affordable Care Act, uh, if you don't meet these uh, these critical behavioral health needs, so that's about all I can say at this point, Maya. Okay, that's fine. Thank you, uh, John. I've, I've rem- I'm remiss. Uh, just in case anyone uh, is unfamiliar, just a quick reminder on that using the chat. Yep, just make sure that your uh, comments and questions are addressed to all participants down where it says send to, all participants. All right, thank you very much. And a reminder for anyone who has uh, joined the program only by phone today, you can get all the elements uh, that we're sharing, the slides in the in the chat, et cetera, um, on IHI.org tomorrow, or you can ask for some of those elements right away um, if you email info at IHI.org. Um, I, Mara, why don't you kind of jump in here uh, in terms of um, not so much on the, on the payment model, but uh, on this issue, an interesting thing that Robin said, which is that culture eats strategy for lunch. And I was going to ask Robin a little more about that as well. But um, I don't know what you're finding in terms of either some of your own research or work with practices in terms of merging these worlds uh, in some sense. It's not just mechanistic. Uh, this is your role. This is your role. But folks, i got to get used to kind kind of being part of almost a a seamless culture. What have you found? I think what Robin said is exactly right. You know, we can say you do this and you do this, but the cultures that between behavioral health and primary care can be quite different. It's different in the ways that the providers were trained. It's the differences in the way that they usually practice. And there can be a lot of cultural clashes when people uh, aren't practicing the way that they think that they necessarily should be practicing. And so I think, you know, it's one thing to assign people to a team and tell them to do something. And it's another to have an organizational culture that really supports practicing in an integrated way and actually provide staff with the training and support to kind of understand why it is that they're practicing in this new way and not just saying, here's what you do now. And so I think, you know, when we were doing some research on what the core components of successful integration models were, the culture piece just kept on coming up again and again as a huge barrier. And I think that, you know, it it takes a lot of work, but once the kind of cultural piece has changed within the organization, that element, once that element is kind of I don't want to say out of the way, but once it's not as big of an issue, then the you know success and the outcomes can really start to come, but the cultural piece can't be ignored. Okay, exactly. All right, thanks a lot. Robin, let me uh, flip to you for a moment. Um, you, I think, I think it's Ed who flagged it. Maybe you alluded to it. What about um, addressing in these models and to what extent there are challenges when there is major depression? I'm trying to sort of figure out where maybe some of the some of your uh, climbing hills <laughs> continue in, in, in this space as well, um, where uh, there's such a range of things that are all being talked about here when we're talking about behavioral health, and I'm wondering about the major depression uh, component or any other sort of serious uh, mental health issues. Some of the places, Madge, that we've, that we've come into, into running into is that fear around severe and persistent mental illness and folks who really are more complicated than primary care can handle. Especially in some of our more rural areas, there's a a fear that I can't manage this, I can't handle this. And what we found is the issue that we struggle with at times is having enough psychiatric consultation 
for even just that reassurance that I'm going in the right direction with my medication. I'm going in the right direction with this strategy and I don't need a higher level of care. Um, where we've struggled is making sure that we have that psychiatric consultation available. When you're in a place like Bend, Oregon, it is beautiful. It's a wonderful place to live. But the crisis of providers and the lack of providers who are trained and want to do this kind of work uh, has impacted us profoundly. So we haven't been able to always provide the kind of supports to our providers to give them the confidence that they can deal with the more complicated issues. So they panic and then they feel that it's not working and they forget that the behavioral health consultant is right there and while they're not a prescriber at this point, they are somebody who brings skills and other, and other facets to the table that can deal with most of these things and also has the knowledge about the resources within the community to connect people. And that's kind of the other place that we've struggled. Central Oregon uh, is part of Oregon's Coordinated Care Organization and the Medicaid Project that started in, in 2011 for us in 2013 for most of the rest of the state. And as an early adopter of a global payment strategy around Medicaid, and now with what we call our new alternative payment project, where the hospital system and primary care are in a risk-sharing agreement for all 50,000 Medicaid lives. Um, we've had to become reliant upon an entire community system of care when folks are too complicated for primary care that has just the same access challenges we do. We got 18,000 new covered lives in less than six months in our health system, uh, and that was very difficult and disruptive. And those access challenges taught us a whole lot about identification and targeting the right people. It's not always the people who are showing up in primary care who are the complex patients. It's often the people who are not. Okay, very, very interesting. Thanks, Robin. Um, and uh, Chris is reminding us that even in not an isolated region here in Western Mass, there's a shortage of prescribers. And I, I guess that I'm gonna go back to you, Ed, for a moment in terms of, again, sort of that leap uh, uh, awareness and experience, uh, what about shortages, not being able to really have all the people you need uh, on the team because they're not, they're not around or they're, they don't have the time? Well, uh, you know, uh, effective practices build relationships outside of the practice to fill the gaps that they can't fill. Uh, with uh, on their own team uh, and uh, major depression is a wonderful example because of the powerful evidence that that the the so-called collaborative care model uh, improves outcomes and and uh, and keeps people out of major exacerbations and and in most implementations of the collaborative care model the the psychiatric consultant is outside the practice and is in is simply providing advice to the providers and the care managers who are core members of of the of the practice team not the behaviorists these are the medical assistants and nurses that are part and parcel of everyday primary care um and so that uh, you don't have to have an on-site psychiatrist. If you have re reasonable access, then most of the prescribing is, is being done by the primary care providers with the advice and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, support of, of this outside consultant. So that's, that's how uh, uh, innovative practices are filling these gaps in their expertise uh, by building relationships, whether with individual providers or with community agencies. Okay, thanks, Ed. Um, Mara, I'm going to ask you a question. To what extent, uh, from the work you've seen, and everyone else can weigh in on this, are patients and families uh, part of designing any of these models or have uh, a pathway uh, in terms of helping to shape what the integration is going to look like? I think it varies. I think in, in some models, patients have been kind of a part of the design team and identifying what it is that they want and what their wishes are, and some practices are actually regularly serving 
having patients to ask them, you know, are all of your health needs being met, including medical and behavioral needs? I think it varies. I think, you know, um, Robin and Perinda probably have a better sense of what else is out there. Um, but I think more and more kind of patient input is being taken into account because this is for patient benefit as well. Definitely. Perinda, why don't you pick up on that in terms of um, to what extent patients and families uh, ha have a way to kind of help uh, shape what's evolving there at Cherokee. And I think that um, patients and families are absolutely critical. And I think it really, the, the engagement, um, patient engagement, this whole component of patients becoming really the center and in charge of their own health care is uh, really going to be uh, the critical factor in meeting, you know, uh, triple aim goals. So we are a federally qualified health center. So we're essentially owned by our patients. Over 50% of our board uh, has to be, you know, consumers, so they're patients who get care from us. We have patient uh, focus groups. We have patient engagement, patient um, components in all, built into our electronic health record and documentation. So the thing we ask them all is, what is your goal? What do you want to accomplish? So in the treatment plan, there may be, there's a section for what the, what the clinician goal is, but there's also a section for what's the patient goal, and then we have to reconcile that. So I think our, our, it's a culture issue again, like what Robin said. We, we want to have a culture that is very patient-centric. And so at every step of the way, from check-in to the way we, you know, organize our appointments and call center, everything really is organized around the patient. And that certainly, um, certainly includes the content and quality and process of the clinical time, face-to-face -face clinical time we have with them. Okay. Thanks, Perinda. Robin, can we, uh, turn to you uh, for, for some additional thoughts on that around the role of um, patients and families. Yeah, uh, you know, some of the projects that we've been working on within our complex patient uh, programs have started to focus in on certain disease states like diabetes, and, and many of you have done this, I'm sure, chronic pain and other things like that. But one of the most interesting places where we were very able to easily and quickly engage patients and families was in our pediatric diabetes health engagement team. This is a small team focused on the type 1 diabetics within our community who primarily have Medicaid but often have commercial or other types of insurance. Uh, and our kids who are struggling with new diagnoses and poorly managed type 1 diabetes, when we started working with these kids and identifying how we were going to conduct interventions, and, and that's a presentation in and of itself, but what came out of our early work with that was a desire by their parents to become involved in the development of what is now an app that helps these children monitor and measure their blood glucose levels and become engaged in the development of that app. And we now have a very active and what is organic uh, parent advisory council and kids support group that came out of work targeted on one specific disease state. On Tuesday morning, we kicked off a similar project looking at our asthma champions targeting pediatrics who have chronic asthma within our community and using some similar technologies. And we're hoping that we'll get the same type of parental and family involvement and children's support groups at the school-based health center level so that these kids can be supportive for each other. And that's where we're really starting to see that type of engagement pay off. Oh, interesting. Very, very interesting. Mara, as far as the health issues, sort of behavioral, sort of lifestyle issues uh, going along with chronic uh, health problems, give us, I probably could have done this even at the beginning, but give us some flavor. What, what are we talking about? What are the range of things that don't necessarily fall under mental health issues per se, but really have to do with kind of the behavioral things that go along with uh, chronic issues? The main thing that comes to mind is the various chronic diseases that require some sort of behavior change to actually see improvement. So say a diabetic patient whose A1Cs aren't improving, they're medicated, but they need to actually eat better, but there are some behavioral barriers that prevent them from doing so, and it's one thing to tell them to eat better, for example, but to actually be able to explore some of those barriers as to why perhaps they're not eating better. Perhaps they live in a food desert and they don't have access to healthy foods, and and the behavioral health provider can help them kind of figure out how to overcome those barriers that 
the, ordinarily the primary care provider might not have time to do that. It might not come up. So issues like that where there are behavioral barriers to improving their health, that also might be related to some social circumstances that are also barriers for them as well. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, listen, we're five minutes to, so what I'm going to do is we're going to go around the horn and I want to get some kind of parting words uh, from everyone and uh, kind of watch this space. Uh, what your, I don't know, if we came back and talked to you in uh, six months' time, you know, what might we hear about uh, in your work? Uh, let's start with you, Perinda, at Cherokee. Well, we are um, very focused right now on health information technology and using uh, telehealth, using all of our electronic health record data, utilization data to help us with predictive analysis, help to kind of identify complex patients, identify the needs of each patient from the get-go. And so uh, that in, in addition to our telehealth, uh, which we use quite extensively. So I would say uh, we're going to try to max our uh, the, the use of all of the technology we have at hand to help us meet all of our goals in terms of quality of care and access to care. Okay, thanks, Perinda. Robin? Well, in the next six months, <laughs> there's two things you're going to see from us at St. Charles. First, you're going to see a honing in uh, on the scale and spread of our work in identification at the clinic level and to help each clinic become expert in identifying their complex patients that our health engagement teams need to care for uh, in each clinic. And you're going to see a tightening of those processes that we're going to talk about in our work with IHI. The second thing, and the one that's really personally exciting for me, is an expanded journey and focus on pediatrics. We see working with pediatrics and especially complex pediatrics as the future of, of our healthcare system and where we really need to focus the future of population health. If we're going to make Bend America's healthiest community, our focus needs to be with our children and our youth and making sure those people get off to a good healthy start so that 15 and 20 years from now, they're healthy and very much leading the way so that their children for generations to come are very healthy. We're just at the initial phases of building out our program for the evaluation of development and learning and the many spokes that will touch complex children in Central Oregon and we hope serve as a model for rural communities around the country. Thanks a lot, Robin. You know, Ed, I want to turn to you and I realize I didn't make um, much distinction here and I apologize uh, to our audience for that in terms of adult and pediatric populations. We didn't sort of, you know, get into that in quite that way. But if that's relevant uh, in any way from, for your remarks and some thoughts about, uh, I don't know, what folks uh, should keep their eyes on uh, in the work ahead. Well, I, I mean, our work has been devoted to trying to understand what what makes up a high-functioning primary care team and how to address the cultural training and other issues in building such teams. And, um, I mean, I think what we've learned from the 31 LEAP sites across the country, of which, by the way, we have summarized now in a practical web-based guide, and I urge listeners to uh, take a look at www.improvingprimarycare.org, which uh, summarizes what we've learned. And, and, and what we see is that, uh, that you can do so much more if you have an effective team, and including uh, behavioral health, much of which uh, is done by, as I said earlier, the core members of the team, the, the provider, the medical assistant, the nurse, et cetera. And then you add the additional expertise. So take a look at, uh, at what we've uh, put together and what we've learned from these sites. Thanks, Ed. And we do have the URL up on the chat transcript, and it will land in a resource document as well at, uh, tomorrow um, on IHI.org and plus a lot of other references. All right, Mara, you get kind of the last word. Uh, we have alluded to uh, ongoing uh, discussion of these issues coming up at the forum and some exciting stuff also coming up uh, here at IHI. 
Yeah, so I think I think we're really past the point of making the case that integration is something that organizations should work on. A lot of incentives are aligning for organizations to actually start to work on this. Obviously, there are still a lot of barriers, particularly financial ones, for them to make. But I think you know at IHI, it's an exciting time for us to be working in this area because we have the privilege of watching successful organizations continue their work, and then we're also able to help support organizations in doing this. And so I guess it's probably a good time to mention a new collaborative that we're launching in February. It's called Optimize Primary Care Teams to Meet Patients' Medical and Behavioral Needs. And we're partnering with Ed and um, the McCall Center to really help organizations take the next step to develop high-performing primary care teams to address these co-occurring medical and behavioral needs. We're really, really excited about this. Um, I'd encourage you all to take a look at our website if you're interested in learning more. But I think you know it's an exciting time for everybody to be working on this. So we look forward to how this all continues to develop. Thanks a lot. And also at the forum coming up next week, week, there is a breakfast where people can learn. Is that on Wednesday yes, morning? so Wednesday morning at uh, 7 a.m., bright and early, uh, Cindy Hupke and I will be doing a breakfast uh, to speak with organizations about primary care teams and to learn more about the collaborative. All right, so if you're in Orlando at the Forum, it's still time to come. Uh, you can get up early and have some breakfast and learn more uh, from Mara and Cindy. And uh, thank you, Cindy. I know you've been kind of a silent partner uh, on today's program, but we're glad that you've been with us and hope you feel a little better, and thank you for all your help with planning this call. Ditto to Mara Laterman, Perinda Katri, uh, Robin Henderson, and Ed Wagner. I couldn't do this without you, and I couldn't do it without the audience. And uh, so a thank you uh, always. Uh, next up on WIHI, something that will tide you over in December while we take just a little hiatus for the forum and then some holiday time coming up. On December 16th, we'll be posting a special edition podcast that will feature well-known hospitalist and safety expert Robert Walker, and he's delivering a keynote address, a mini keynote at the National Forum, 10 Things Every Hospital Needs to Know to Be Safe. I'm going to be there in the room with him, helping to moderate the discussion. Then with help here from Matt, we're going to edit it up very nicely and provide it uh, to everyone as a podcast. So look for that in about a little less than two weeks' time. In the meantime, check out all our archive material that's uh, from all the shows that we've done in 2014 plenty. Thank you all for being such a loyal audience this year. And again, you can find all the elements from this program today, including the audio on IHI.org and on iTunes tomorrow. So a reminder, I can't do this show also without a great team here at um, IHI, and they include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Lily Stairs. And a special thank you to Ruth as well today, who's getting the hang of being here in the studio with us. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, see some of you in Orlando. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.